listening to College Success Habits with Jesse Mogul, episode 157. Let's get to the show. Oh, this show's the best. The best show. Best show. Best show ever. Welcome to the College Success Habits podcast. Do you want to triumph through school and have a little fun along the way? Learn habits to help you attain better productivity and hacks to help you slide through classes at any age. Here's your host, college circuit speaker, Jesse Mogul. Welcome back to College Success Habits. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and as always, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here. We have dived into, dove into all of the past, present, and future tense terms for the word diving and doving and all of the above into some insanely awesome material over the last couple months from getting your mindset right for the fall, setting your standards and goals and and how to set standards, how your morals and ethics and your beliefs and your opinions are all guiding this version of you in your current life. And then last week we talked about stop arguing and start loving in a system that will help you begin to actually connect in your conversations with those that you love. One of the things that we really enjoy diving into when we talk about the college success habits, and for a lot of people who might just be finding the show, you might be quite surprised that we're not sitting here talking about study habits and financial success and some of the things that are more on the surface. One, I believe that there are plenty of shows who cover that, and those aren't my areas of expertise. I'm not the leading voice in those fields. Where I bring my uh, version of lived experience and my expertise to your successful completion of college, and in fact, successful just completion of being an adult, is understanding the internal mechanisms of your psychology that are going on inside of you that are literally guiding who you are now. Someone can tell you all the information they want to about how to study appropriately and save some money and, you know, uh, pick up the girls or, you know, flirt with the guys and all of the cool stuff that I remember caring about in college. But if you don't understand what's going on inside of you, what's fueling your behaviors, what's what's really just doing this pushing toward what it is you're doing. Uh, Or maybe you're running away from not wanting to be like certain members of your family or certain friends. So now you're using toward and away energy. And we've discussed so many of these things. Where you began to lay the groundwork for your current behaviors was in your childhood. And understanding your childhood at a deeper, more self-aware level is what this episode is going to be about. When you are wondering why is it you behave a certain way around your friends or in relationships or with your family, you know, there's a lot of people who will notice that when they get around their family, when they go back to their hometown, it's like they slide back into an older version of themselves. And then they go back off to college and then they become a different version. And ultimately, we want to integrate these parts. We want to integrate who you were and who your parents and your old you know, siblings and or old schoolmates, um, who you were there isn't somebody you necessarily want to, you know, throw into the trash bin, but you left, you went off to college or you stayed in your town, but still having those kinds of influences at school has changed you. You are changing. And even for you non-traditionals who perhaps are going back to school later on in life with a family already there, you are being 
influenced and you're being introduced to a myriad of new ideas and people that were not in your life previously. I'm even taking classes online and I'm learning so much from these people who are from all over the state of Alabama who have very diverse backgrounds compared to one another, who have lots of different lived experiences, and no matter what their accent might be or their clothes they might wear, how much their hair and makeup or just the background of their Zoom, no matter what any of that is, when I just listen to what they're sharing, I am profoundly impacted by their experiences and how they can help me feel more connected to people who aren't like me. Ultimately, your brain will be looking for people who are like you, experiences that are similar, because there's a comfort level in there. And you might be very, I'm not going to say against that, but you might be rebelling against that. And so now you seek people who are more dissimilar to you, who have less in common with you, because you want to experience other people and not just be around the same old, same old from your hometown or from your family. And so you'll notice a part of you that's seeking similarity while also seeking dissimilarity. And we'll cover different levels of meta patterns of of personality profiles that go way beyond Myers-Briggs or DISC or Bank or any of those because, well, except for perhaps maybe Bank, um, a lot of them are how you externalize what's going on internally. When we discuss what's going on internally with you, and we start to to hearken it back to your childhood, when we bridge that gap from where you were then to who you are now, you'll start to have a lot of internal pops, maybe some frustration, some confusion will pop in because you haven't seen it this way before, and your brain is learning a new way of experiencing you. And when you begin to experience all of these things that college will invite you toward and and, and introduced to you, there is going to be a kickback. It's going to be unconscious for most of us. Uh, Once we notice it and we're self-aware of it, then it becomes conscious, certainly. But then what have we said before? You know, it's self-sabotage is what's happening when you're unconscious to your behaviors driving what it is you're doing right? Unconscious to your programming that's driving these behaviors. Let me clear it up. Let me say it that way. That when things are happening unconsciously in your thoughts and your feelings, and they're driving these actions and behaviors, then it's self-sabotage because you're not even completely aware why you're doing it. You just keep finding yourself back at a very similar outcome that's no longer serving your needs. It's no longer serving who you want to become. Now, once we take this unconscious programming, and we lay it out in front of us and we see it on the table, then it's no longer self-sabotage because now we're consciously aware of it. So then if you keep making the same choices, getting yourself back to a similar um, outcome, then you're just making a shitty choice, pardon the French, because you know better. So when you know better, you do better, and then you are better. That's at least the philosophy. But So when then we're like, okay, well, Jesse, I want to know better. All right, well, you're listening to the show, so step one complete. I want to do better. Okay. The doing better is taking action every day. And then the being better is the future pacing, realizing that goals and the outcomes that you set for yourself, that's where you set your standards and and that's where you set your intentional behaviors each and every day. That's all fine and good. That's delicious. I'm loving how I'm laying this out. But ultimately, there is going to be a lot of unconscious programming that's guiding the way you behave. And it's all started in childhood. 
There's a reason why therapists and counselors and so many people who work in the mental health field want to dive into people's childhoods because that's where the groundwork was laid. The foundation for who you are right now was laid when you are a child. And these tend to get laid at your feet for you to cope with because of adverse childhood experiences. They're called ACEs in the field, adverse childhood experiences. And the thing with adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, so no, I will call them ACEs throughout the show. I'm talking about adverse childhood experiences, is that no one really has a barometer for what will register with a child as being an adverse experience. We don't. And this is where I could sit here and come up with a thousand, a million, infinite amounts of variables and hypothetical situations I could bring up so you could find yourself in this story. But honestly, there's so many of them that I, it would, I might as well just hit record and never stop talking when it comes to trying to lay out every single one that could matter to you, that could have influenced you as a young human being. Over here in my notes, I wrote down helicopter parents versus latchkey kids. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. We were very much latchkey kids. Now, I did have a mom who was at home, but she was very ill with Crohn's. So there's a lot of times where I'd come home. Um, I'd let myself in. She'd be taking a nap. She wouldn't be feeling well. I'd make my own lunch. I'd set up at the table. I'd do my homework. I had a parent there, but I was very much still operating with this sense of independent responsibility. A lot of children from the 80s and 90s, that's whenever two, uh, two working parents really became the norm. Next thing you know, there's a reason they call this latchkey, right? Because they would hide this the, the latchkey somewhere around the property and you'd go get your key and you'd come in and you did your thing. You're seeing a wild snap the other way because so many children were raised as latchkey kids. Now you're seeing helicopter parents, right? Tiger moms and, and that that label has existed over in Asia for quite some time. Its influence in our society over here in the Western civilization, especially in the United States, um, came about more so when um, you saw this lashback, this auto, this, it's really a huge auto correction, the opposite way, way too extreme. So now we're dealing with parents who just hover and they don't want to allow the children to actually face any kind of hardships. They just want to solve all the problems before the problems happen. This can create ACEs. This can actually create a child not feeling like they're independent enough to handle their own their own business. Just like back in the day, being a latchkey kid created ACEs in us that said we don't have the support of our family, that there's not going to be somebody at home to help us understand our emotions um, if we got bullied at school or we got a bad grade. Right, My dad was very much get good grades or suffer the consequences, but there wasn't any support there to help whenever I needed a question answered while I studied, and that became an ace for me. Now, as an adult, I, I study very hard. I, I prepare very fervorously. You know, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm absolutely a progressionist, meaning I get it done to the best of my ability in the time, and I send it out there. If I was a progressionist, we probably wouldn't even be at episode 100 of this show let alone 156. So let's dive into some of these archetypes that are created as children when we begin to face adverse childhood experiences. Because whether you had somebody who was sick in the family, maybe there's an addiction in the family, emotionally unintelligent, violent, there's a lot of different ways you could have experienced the uh, your family unit 
in your home. And then you go and you extend beyond the family unit in your direct home and you start, who's the secondary circle? That's the nieces and the nephews and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents, presuming they lived in different homes. And then you had the third circle. Now you start to build out the social structure you created in elementary school and the teachers and the influences that came from other peers. And then, of course, if you were religious, now you've got the church's influence on you as well. And then if there was any activities or sports you were in, now you see how the circle grows. And at any one of these levels is an opportunity for a child to have an adverse experience. So when these adverse experiences happen and the child isn't emotionally intelligent, which most children aren't, and they're being raised by emotionally unintelligent adults, parents and and grandparents and the like, and of course, just because somebody's a teacher doesn't mean immediately they're emotionally intelligent. I went to Ball State University. Uh, A lot of people go to that school to become teachers. They have their own stuff they're working out. They were raised by emotionally unintelligent parents just like the rest of us. And that cycle's been going on since we were cave people. So you have this whole mix of socially and emotionally unintelligent people raising little humans. And while there is emotional intelligence naturally in us, like I'm not saying that all humans are just emotionally unintelligent where they lack any level of self-awareness any level of self-management, any level of social awareness, anywhere, any level of, of relationship management. I'm not saying that. We have these things in us, but we also have the opposite, where we aren't as aware of our emotions. We don't manage ourselves in a way that actually behooves us and, and benefits us. We get into these social situations and we're not sure how to manage them or be aware of, of the quote-unquote best thing to say or the best way of behaving. And it's these little things. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like they could be minuscule, microscopic, just a nuance of the way someone's eyes looked at you or the way their body language sagged. And next thing you know, you start to spiral into your head. What does that mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? And without any real barometer gauge to set what things mean in your head, you just start making up meanings for them especially whenever you're at that that zero to seven range. And that's where a majority of these behaviors begin to lay their foundation. So if one member of the family has an illness, if they're an alcoholic, if they're an abuser, if there's something that's that's off in some way, it will influence the entire family unit. Right now, there's multiple models that we can follow on this, and I've got lots of different studies in front of me and show notes that are very deep. But for the most part, I'm going to keep this as relatively surface as I can so that it's something that you can take away from this and actionably use in your life now, where you can locate yourself in here. So we're not going to dive too deep, but we're going to stay just at the right level so that when you walk away from this, you say, okay, that's, that's what I've was programmed to do, am I okay with this? I'm not saying you have to change your behaviors, but being aware that the behaviors are being influenced because of things that happened in your childhood give you that opportunity and that level of self-awareness that says, is this still serving me? And it might be serving you now, and it may not serve you later. So that's the best part about the archives of this show is you can remember to come back to this and say, is being codependent, is being the adjuster, is being the hero or the mascot or the scapegoat or the clown, is that still benefiting me? There might be time and a place for some of these behaviors and there might be a time and a place for you to stop enabling yourself and enabling other people and making them become more self-reliant. 
If you're a parent listening to this show, I cannot stress enough how important it is for a child to be raised with a very strong amount of independence and self-reliance. You won't always be there. My parents weren't there when I went to college, and they did not raise me as well as I would have preferred, looking back at it, to have that level of um, personal responsibility to notice, wow, this drinking is actually causing me to get bad grades. And since my dad's not there to spare the rod, spoil the child, um, I will just continue on with this behavior. And ultimately, it cost me Ball State University. I was politely asked to exit stage left. Not what I would have preferred, but that's absolutely what happened. And it was a series of aces that happened in my childhood that laid down the framework for my future behaviors at Ball State University, at Valencia Community College, and at the University of Florida. And I'm still playing these out to this day in my life. So when we have this codependency on other people, we begin to shift our behaviors in order to, quote-unquote, survive, in order to fit in, in order to feel like we're part of the tribe within our family unit, within our home. And so these are going to be some of the roles that you are going to be able to say, hmm, is this how I'm behaving? Now, I'll put these roles in a very um, not, not necessarily long, drawn-out order in the show notes, but I will put them into the show notes. I'm also currently building up some free ebooks on some of these episodes. Um, I will run an ad in front of the episodes uh, whenever some of those are done. I've got a stand store where you can go over there and pick them up for free. It's super easy. Um, and so I actually created one for last week's start, uh, stop arguing, start laughing. And if you go to standstore.com forward slash Jesse Mogul, you can find that. Um, I mentioned the web address because I've been saying go to the show notes. And then I discovered that Podbean and Pandora and iHeartRadio don't uh, lay out the show notes the way I created them. So they look very garbled, almost like an amateur made them. <laughs> they look super professional, and all the links work when you go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So even if you don't listen to me on any one of those two apps, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, if you're looking for the links and the show notes to be organized correctly, that's where you would go. I have not searched all of the places that I post my podcast because a lot of the times I'm not the one doing it. Podbean is just naturally doing it through their software. So I just know for a fact Spotify and Apple Podcasts lay out my show notes accordingly and all my links are active. So if you're looking for them, go there and I'll also put that message in an ad that I'll run in front of the episode soon. So let's dive into what roles are. Roles are these archetypes. They are a behavior. They are the way you be, you behave, right? You know, think about the roles that there was in like a, um, in like the, the, if you watch Game of Thrones or you watch anything with like a court where there's like a king and queen and whatnot, everybody has their role. There's a grand maester, and that's the person whose role it is to have the knowledge. And then there's, you know, the the medicine person, and that's the person, you know, put leeches on them. And that was, apparently that was the thing back in the day. Everything, what's wrong with you? Everything needs a leech. There's the court jester. Their role is to tell jokes and keep things light and funny. And then there's the cup person. Their job is, their role is to keep everybody's cup filled. And of course, there's the cooks. And then there's the maids and the bedpan people. And of course, there's the leaders, the hand 
who is the second in command. They're the person who answers the questions and helps the king or queen along. And, of course, the king and queen have their roles. You can look in a hospital. There's the doctor and there's the physicians and there, there's the, the person who does the um, anesthesiologist and there's a the person who looks at the x-rays. People have their roles. In school, there's roles. There's your teacher aide. The professor has a role. Your student advisor has a role. The dean. Everybody has roles. And it's how they're supposed to behave when they are in this particular environment. You had ways that you taught yourself to behave in particular environments when you were young because of this internal desire to survive, to fit in, to not be an outcast. So let's go over some of these roles. Um, there's, again, multiple studies. I'm not going to go into who founded them and all that. That'll be in the show notes. Um, and again, I don't want to get too lost in the muck and mire of all of these uh, this research that I did. But certainly, this will benefit you by knowing, oh, am I this? Am I that? And is this working for me? So the first one we're going to discuss is the codependent, right? They enable somebody else to continue with a behavior, right? They become the enabler. Right, they might protect an alcoholic from negative consequences. They might protect a child from negative consequences. The child acts up, gets in an argument with the teacher, gets in a fight at school. The parent runs up there and, and starts blaming the teacher. This is something I hear is happening a lot lately uh, from my friends who have children, where they're like, "Yeah, the parents getting reamed out by the the the, the teacher is getting reamed out by the parents." But what's wrong with them? Why why aren't you doing this? Whereas back in the day, it was definitely the child's personal responsibility to not act up in class. But now, for some reason, that's flipped, and it's what are you doing wrong to the teachers? What the parents are doing in there is you're enabling this behavior to continue going. Do you see where you were enabled as a child to continue along a certain behavioral path? And then that became your norm. You just assumed that people were always going to step in and save you. That you didn't have to be personally responsible for any of your behaviors because somebody would come in and they'd clean up the mess for you. This very much can, can be a direct lead over to somebody who's codependent. You were the dependent child. And the parent was your codependent. They enabled a certain behavior by not making you suffer the consequences, get grounded, something to that extent. If you find yourself as an adult um, feeling like other people should pull you out of the messes you create, you have been enabled. And that's something you're going to want to correct. Do you do this for somebody? No matter what happens, you're the first one there to solve the problem for them. This is where helicopter parents come into play. They're enabling their child's lack of self-reliance by constantly trying to make sure that their child doesn't have to face any hardships. Look, we need to get a C. We, we, we need to get in an argument with our friends. We need to suffer some consequences for our behaviors to see what's on the other side, to be able to judge, is this the outcome I really want. And then we sit down and we have a really awesome conversation about switching those behaviors to get a more beneficial outcome. But if you're constantly stopping somebody else from facing negative outcomes, they don't even realize problem solving is a skill they're supposed to be developing. Problem solving is one of the most important aspects of life, let alone adulthood. So are you being the codependent for somebody else? Are you enabling somebody else? Has somebody been your codependent and and enabled you? 
be mindful of this and ask yourself, where can you take on more personal responsibility? Where can you adult up? All right, the next ones we're going to cover. Are you the responsible one? Right? Did you bring order to a chaotic home? Did, were you the one who tried to be the hero? Right? Where you took greater responsibility for what was happening in the house? Right? If the, if you had a chaotic home and you were the one who was organizing the pantry shelves or trying to make sure dinner was made on time or getting the school lunches for your siblings done or if somebody else or maybe your sibling was doing this, they were the responsible one and you were the beneficiary of all of their responsible oneness. Right? Did you have an older brother or sister who um, wanted to always protect you and enable you? Right? They were stepping in as the enabler and codependent, and then they were also the responsible one at home, making sure you got up for school and got out on time, right? that your lunch was ready, that you sat down to study. Right? You could be on either side of this, and that's what's really important. Was this you or was this somebody else? Because if somebody else was always bringing order to a chaotic home for you, you may not necessarily have the skills to keep your dorm room or your apartment um, relatively chaotic free. And imagine if everybody who's living with you um, was somebody who had the chaos taken care of for them. Conversely, conversely, imagine if everybody in that apartment was the responsible one as a child and they brought order to the chaos at home. Now you've got multiple people trying to be the ones bringing order to the apartment. Do you think you're all going to have the same kind of mechanisms and behaviors in place to keep order similarly? Do you think that there might be butting of heads somewhere in there? Because your level of keeping things less chaotic isn't the same level that somebody else in your apartment has. What about in a relationship? If you're both trying to ease up the chaos, then are you enabling the other one? Are you stepping in as the codependent? You don't want the chaos to come, so you're constantly stepping in for them and not having them face any adverse experiences. But then they don't learn better ways of behaving. So you want to be extremely mindful of were you the responsible one or was a responsible one taking care of you? Because this will absolutely turn you into a people pleaser as an adult as a placator, as somebody who wants to make sure that everybody around them is taken care of, that things are organized because you want to be the leader of that organization, that can wear you out. That can burn you out. If you're always the responsible one, at some point, and I shouldn't have said always, but if you are significantly the responsible one in your apartment, in your relationships, in your life toward other people, at some point, that's going to burn you out you're going to begin to grow some level of animosity towards the other people because you feel like their life is chaotic without you stepping in. And the other person might actually want some of that responsibility, and they may not even know it yet because they haven't had a chance to seize the reins on that. What about lost child, right? Were you a lost child? Was there a ton of people in your home? Were you the middle child, perhaps, where your needs and your wants were overlooked? This can be a tough one. Because I have, I was in a, um, I only had me and my sister living in the house, but she was definitely, to me, from my perspective, the lost child. I was definitely doted upon by mom more. Um, I definitely got the rod more from my stepdad because he wanted to make sure that I got a good education, I had a good job, and I could create a, you know, a strong financial support system for myself so I could go off and have my own family one day. Whereas my sister, not so much. 
There wasn't a whole lot of conversation around going to college. When my parents got divorced and she entered into freshman year of high school, mom moved away. Dad was a workaholic. I'll call him dad, but he was stepdad, but he was, he was dad. Um, but you hear me talk about my dad who's alive a lot, and so I don't want to get you confused. I have a dad who's alive in Oklahoma, and I have a dad who passed away who was technically the stepdad. So I have two dads, like the old TV show, My Two Dads, except they're separate and with other people. Um, point is, is that my, my sister, I felt like she was the lost child. Um, she still feels like she's left out and lost, even as an adult. Like she missed out on a lot of things as a child because they didn't put as much attention toward her as they did me. This can cause feelings of abandonment, um, sorrow, um, isolation, depression, dissolution. It can, all of these. And so are you the lost child? Or is somebody in your family the lost child? Is somebody close to you in your, in your inner circle the lost child? They could be, they could come off as very needy. Um, very emotionally unstable or wanting their emotions tended to more so than others. See, here's the tricky part about all of these. We don't really know how they're going to surface in adulthood. What we're looking for is understanding if they were there in childhood and then looking to current behaviors and saying, could this be linked to that? Because somebody could be very isolating, never talk about their emotions, right? Look down when emotions come up, not be able to cry, not know how to, you know, just be emotional. And they could have been a lost child. Their needs and wants were overlooked, so they just learned to handle them internally. And they don't ask other people for help physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. Conversely, we could be looking at a lost child whose needs and wants were overlooked, and they decided that they absolutely wanted their needs and wants to be looked at as they got older, and now they're very much in your face with their emotions and their needs and their wants. It could go both ways. What we're looking for is an understanding of what happened then to see where it's showing up now. Just like a, there's another archetype called the adjuster. They detach emotionally and they can adjust to any situation. Do you call yourself a chameleon? Do you think that you can literally go from, you know, talking to um, someone who's, you know, black from Africa to talking to somebody who's from Asia to talking to somebody who's from South America to talking to somebody who's from, you know, um, the deep south of, of the Americas to somebody from Scandinavia? And do you feel like you can just chameleon your way right into all of those groups where you can immediately just adjust to any situation? This is absolutely cool and beneficial because you'll get to meet so many people and people will feel like you're authentic and real and that they can get to know you. But there's a part of you that could be detaching emotionally, that you're adjusting to these different friend groups because you really don't want to be ostracized and left out of the tribe. So you may not feel like you're actually a part of any of them because you won't feel like you're really being yourself toward any of them. So be mindful of that. Also, adjusting to any situation could be going home for the holidays and having that be an extremely toxic environment and then going back to your dorm where it's super friendly and being able to adjust and being able to monitor your own external behaviors based on your internal feelings and thoughts. That ability to adjust is super handy to being, you know, to almost like you keep your emotions in a box. You've detached yourself emotionally from them. Again, that could show itself as being someone who is 
you know, yelled at by a, a lover storming out the door. You never open up to me. I don't ever feel like you're in this emotionally, right? Because you're, you lean so much on the adjuster, you've boxed up your emotions. Conversely, you could have somebody yelling at you and storming out the door because you um, don't detach from your emotions and you feel things so deeply and everything is just so dramatic and so over the top. You don't adjust to situations as effortlessly as others. So you've gone against the adjuster, perhaps because you were such an adjuster as a child. So you want to be mindful. Do you detach emotionally and adjust to situations at all costs? Again, this is neither good nor bad. It's self-awareness. And then you ask yourself, okay, I do detach emotionally. I can't adjust to any situation. Adjusting to situations is awesome, right? That's the beginning of just being like a friendly human being. But if you're detaching emotionally in order to achieve this, you might find that a lot of your relationships don't get very deep, aren't very involved, don't seem as exciting as they could be because you're not really in them. Another archetype is the placator, tries to make others feel better, right? You're always placating somebody else. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you need anything, right? In um, men and women conversations, um, this often gets mocked whenever you find a man who's constantly asking the woman, is she okay? Does she need anything? He like wants to be like at her beck and call, right? Now, regardless of what we might think that looks like as an adult, imagine what that must have felt like as a child to constantly feel like you needed to make sure your parents were feeling okay. But they were so, their own emotional homeostasis balance was so dependent on whether the parents or their siblings were feeling okay that they put all their energy into making sure someone else was doing fine because then they could be doing fine. That's exhausting. And that's not helpful as an adult when now that can be seen as, you know, I guess for the lack of a better way of saying it off the top of my head, oh, they're just being a little bitch. They they always do everything I ask, everything I want. They just come to my beck and call any time. We know people that are like that. Imagine what was going on as a child that created that. That I'm not good enough unless you're good. That I'm not good enough unless you give me external compliments, unless you show me love, then I'm good enough. That sucks. That hurts. If you're constantly reliant upon somebody else telling you you're good enough, then how many people are you going to be putting into that world? So now maybe one says, hey, you're good enough. Then you go to work or class and somebody says you're not good enough. And now what, you believe them? Because the brain naturally, as a placator, wants everybody to feel good, wants everybody to like them. So they might have their wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or parents say, man, we love you. You're doing a rock star job. And then, you know, the deli clerk yells at them or looks at them with a side eye. And now all of a sudden something's wrong. How can I make that person feel better? I must make them feel better. You can't make everybody feel better. In fact, you have so little control over everybody else's emotions that it's astounding. You think that you can control the way people are going to behave towards you. But I'll tell you that it's not really in your control. There are things that you can do to influence certain ways that they will treat you. But ultimately, every human has something like this going on in them. So now we've gone over the codependent, the enabler, the responsible one, the adjuster, the placator. What about the acting out child? This acting out child can be one of, and I think all of these matter, but this one itself could be very hard to not only figure out from your childhood, but to understand how it's 
creating this version of you now. Um, an acting out child will use bad behavior to distract from the attention. So perhaps there was an alcoholic or an abuser or something not so fun going on, not so lively, not just praying shitty going on in your house. Again, pardon the French. I know I have a lot of uh, young people listening to the show. Um, perhaps there was some you know, adverse childhood experiences going on in your house. And you became the acting out child. Maybe you weren't getting enough attention. You yelled, look, mommy, look, daddy, enough times. They were always at work. They were always paying attention to their own thing. And they weren't paying attention to you. So in order to get attention, um, you began to act out, behaving badly. Maybe somebody in your family um, you know, had something going on in, to, in order to distract the attention of what was happening with them, you began to act bad. So now you became the black sheep. Now all the attention was towards you. And then the other person wasn't, you know, having to be the center of attention. Maybe they wanted it. Maybe they didn't. Right. But in that moment, your bad behavior was trying to bring what you believed was some chaos to the home, uh, some order to the chaos. Right, So the acting out child could be taking on the responsible one or even the placator, trying to make other people feel better. Well, how do I make my sister feel better for getting a, you know, a C in class? I'll go out and I'll take a hammer to the side of the barn. Right, I'll act out. Now the behavior's on me. And they're like, yeah, whatever. You, know, you got a C on your test. Whatever. You know, Jesse just destroyed the barn door. Right, And now that bad thing that happened in my sister's life can be just swept under the rug because they're too busy trying to get the chickens and the pigs corralled from the field. An acting out child who uses bad behavior to distract or attract attention will go on to potentially be an adult who still has these bad behavior programmings to attract or distract the attention. Right, so you're getting bad grades. Okay, I don't want the bad grades to be the center of attention. So, um, you know, I'll drink excessively, or I'll go home for a family function and I'll drink out of control. Now, the drinking is the center of the attention, not the bad grades. Um, even though the drinking was what was causing the bad grades, that still becomes the center of attention. Is this acting out? When you see this, when you look back at your middle school and high school years, who were the acting out childs? Who were the bullies? Those bullies were, there was something going on in their home. This is what allows us to have a level of empathy for people who maybe didn't treat us very well as children. Right? I look back at, uh, at, at John H., and he was my bully whenever I was in um, middle school back at Central in Columbus, Indiana. Um, I know for a fact he had a very abusive childhood. I know he ultimately ended up going to jail and perhaps even prison because of his behaviors. Um, his childhood was tough. Um, dad was abusive. And what that led him to become was a bully. And he acted out bad in school. But then he got the teacher's attention. He got the principal's attention. Because at home, the only attention he got was with a fist. So he wanted attention at school. And, you know, those who get the best, you know, those who just get good grades don't get a whole lot of attention. If you're the valedictorian, it's like everybody's patting you on the back. And if you're the bad kid, the one who acts out, everyone knows who you are and talks behind your back. And of course, the teachers have to give you more attention. So you're either on one scale or the other. But if you're just in that middle ground and you're desperately seeking attention, acting out is one of the fastest ways to get it. So... How has that influenced you? What kind of empathy can you have towards your childhood bully? Or if you were a childhood bully, now can you see how your desire, your desperation for attention 
was so strong that that's what led you to those behaviors. And if you were bullied, what do you think was going on in that person's life? It's not what's wrong with them. It's what happens to them, what happened to them. What was going on in their home that led them to come out to the school and treat people that way? I'm not saying you need to condone that behavior. We're not saying, oh, okay, I understand. They were beaten at home, so it was okay that they beat me up during lunch. And we're not saying that. What we are saying is you you can have empathy for what was going on in their life that caused that behavior as a child, as a teenager. We're not condoning it just because we can understand and accept that things were tough on them. We still don't want people bullying each other and beating each other up. But instead of lashing out and punishing these children, perhaps we can pull them aside, get someone that they can connect with, right, who can actually get inside their head with them and figure out what's going on in your life that's leading to these behaviors. We have the hero, again, taking responsibility, the high achiever, right? So you could either be the acting out child who wants to distract or attract, get attention by acting out. You could also have the hero, the high achiever. Do you have a sister or a brother or someone in your inner circle who is like the 5.0 student, right? They, I mean, their their resume, their CV is just stacked with super high achiever stuff. They took on the hero role. They wanted that responsibility, right? They were the ones getting you ready for school, ready for lunch. Maybe this was you getting people ready and then getting great grades and being really a star athlete and all of this stuff. Right? You see this in a lot of families where they have emotional and financial hardships in their life, um, and then you'll see the, the kid take on like this hero role when it comes to sports or their education, trying to overachieve, high achieve, so they can get the college scholarship, they can go pro, they can get the scholarship for their education, and then they can go off and get a six, seven-figure job so that they can come back and they can save the day. They can buy their mama a house, they can you know, give out loans to the family. This is the hero role at play. Um, We also have the mascot, distracts from the problems of the family, right? Being cute and funny. This goes back over to the adjuster and the placator, trying to make people feel better, um, detaching emotionally. You become the distractor. You become the one who doesn't allow the family's problems to be seen as the focal point. So you could make everybody laugh, right? Were you the court jester? Were you the one who, making people laugh mattered so much, Uh, Matthew Perry recently came out with a book on his struggles with addiction while he was on Friends and, you know, honestly, ever since then. And, you know, he was, as a child, very prone to wanting to make his mother laugh. And then that became making, you know, others laugh, making, wanting women to laugh, wanting to be the person who made people laugh. And there was a part of him dying on the inside because he felt like he couldn't discuss what was actually happening inside of his head with anyone. So he turned to alcohol, he turned to pills, um, almost died multiple times, and he very much follows this mascot um, archetype where he wanted to distract from his problems internally or the family problems from when his mom and dad divorced and then married two different people and had their own families, and he was sort of the kid in the middle. So now he had a little bit of lost child thing going on. Right? So he was constantly adjusting to two different families when he'd go visit them. So he had some adjuster. He had some of this lost child thing going on, and it created a very um, strong archetype of being the mascot, of making people want to laugh. 
And then we have the scapegoat. And there's there's others, obviously. There's the perfectionist and the workaholic and things of that nature. But the scapegoat is one of the last ones we'll cover because we're getting a little long-winded on the show here. Um, the, the scapegoat distracts from the problems by getting into trouble. And this, this is a direct link to the acting out child. Um, and again, these are multiple studies I'm bringing together. So where the scapegoat might sound exactly like the acting out child, um, again, it is the distraction versus the attraction. With the acting out child might actually be looking to attract some attention uh, toward themselves. The scapegoat might be looking to attract or, di- or distract attention from the family as an entire unit. And those are going to be some big differences. Right, So now no one's paying attention to the alcoholic dad because the kid keeps getting arrested or the kid keeps going and vandalizing the, the, the neighborhood. So were you the scapegoat? Is that what you did in order to distract? Is somebody in your life a scapegoat? Right? You, something happens and they immediately, you know, they, somebody breaks a window, so they immediately kick in a door. And so now people are focused on the door and not the window. And they're looking for that level of distraction. It can also be used to attract. They're looking for attention. And this allows them to get it, especially if they felt like a lost child, um, if they're always the hero and they're taking care of things. This is where you see like the super smart people. I mean, I was seventh in my class in high school. This is where you see those super smart people go off and um, they become uh, an acting out child in college. No one was paying attention to me, so I acted out. You know, uh, my bio dad says, you know, he did he didn't want to um, cause me to get mad at him and turn my back on him because he saw what I did to my mom. So he didn't try to correct any of the behaviors. I was mad at my mom and my stepdad for the divorce. So I didn't care about anything that they said. I just acted out and no one showed up to school with a U-Haul and said, you're putting your crap in this thing. We're getting you out of here. They just let me go off and do my own thing. And that is what began, you know, 22 years of addiction. So these are some archetypes I want you to be aware of. Codependent, responsible one, adjuster, placator, the acting out child. These are certain roles that you might have taken in your family, depending on the kind of adverse childhood experiences that were happening within your family unit. Then I want you to think about enabler, hero, lost child, mascot, and scapegoat. These are also... um, roles that are found within the family of people who are suffering adverse childhood experiences, right? And so you'll notice that these are roles that you could have taken on, and some of them will sound same and, and be quite similar, honestly. But, you know, you when you look at codependent, responsible one, adjuster, placator, the acting out child, the enabler, the hero, the lost child, the mascot, the scapegoat, right? Where did you fall in these? Which ones of these influenced your behavior? Again, neither good nor bad. I mean, I suppose, unless you were the acting out child and all of a sudden you found yourself in juvenile hall or getting arrested a lot, then clearly the behavior that you are uh, taking a part of and have turned into a habit needs to be swiftly adjusted. But a lot of these could just merely um, show themselves as people-pleasing or uh, a very strong, independent, freedom-driven life or a codependent, enabling um, wanting always somebody to be around and not knowing how to be okay alone. These are how these things show up. Now, are they good or bad for your life? Again, other than getting arrested and you know finding yourself in jail, um, some of these will just be soft and may not um, show themselves in such an adverse way that you think that they need to be tended to. I want you to have a level of self-awareness to be able to discover these within yourself and then ask yourself, Right now, based on who you are and where you would like to go, 
Are any of these archetypes strong within you? And are they leading you towards your highest sense of self? Are they leading you towards your meant to be? If you're a people pleaser or you're somebody who just doesn't care about pleasing people at all, then you might very much find yourself, uh, you know, being the adjuster or the placator or going so sharply against that that you don't want to be the adjuster or placator and then you don't care about anybody else's needs. And then people think that you're aloof and non-emotional in relationships. All of these have played out in some way in your life. Are they still? And where is your awareness now that you've heard them to sit down and ask yourself, where am I on this scale? And am I happy? And am I moving myself in the right direction? So many of these have existed in our lives for so long that we might be blind to it up until now. And as a latchkey kid, I can absolutely see where some of these played a very strong role in me. And I can also see where I corrected so sharply away from them that it's actually caused me to have adverse experiences as an adult. Whether you're a latchkey kid or you've got a helicopter parent Aces and adverse childhood experiences can be anything. Look, mommy, look, mommy, and they always look, and now you always need someone to look, or you got tired of them always looking, and now you just want people to leave you the hell alone, right? So maybe they were looking so much, or maybe they weren't looking at all, and then you felt like the lost child, and then you just got isolated, and you don't care if anybody looks at you, or you corrected so sharply on that that now you need everybody to look at you, right? Who knows? But We don't think that parents staring at their phones or, you know, being at the baseball game and talking amongst themselves and then me hitting a home run and then missing that, we wouldn't think that that could turn into an adverse childhood experience. But that's the nuance of ACEs. We don't really know what will constitute as an ACE in our life until enough of them happen that they start to influence our behavior. And once we can start noticing a pattern of our, our behavior, then we can start to trace it back to the ACEs that potentially influence that behavior. And from there, we can begin to heal ourselves and shift the way we behave to get better results for ourselves. That's the power of understanding these archetypes. That's the kind of empowerment I seek to bring you by listening to this show. You can change a ton of things externally, but if you're not working on the internal things, no matter where you go, there you are. As always, my friends, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Go to Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, that's where, you'll find li- that's where you'll find the live links. Do you want to join the hub and understand the psychology of your own mind to, uh, to move you f- toward empowering sense of self, being able to get better grades, be able to manage your emotions better, to be able to just interact with people on a whole different level? I teach this in the hub. You can find that at jessemogul.com forward slash the hub or you go to Spotify. Um, go over to um, Apple Podcasts. You'll be able to get the links there um, that are live. Um, otherwise, I'll start running ads before the show about any other opportunities you have for getting stuff. If you'd like to support the show, you can find Jesse Mogul on Patreon. You can also find Jesse Mogul on Stan Store. As always, it's an honor and privilege to have you here for what it turned out to be 50 minutes. Um, thank you so much. I hope you can take these archetypes and find yourself within them and then ask yourself the all-important question, are these still serving me? That answer and what you do from there will only change everything. See you next week. Bye-bye. 